0: This is The Blacklist Podcast. I am one of your two hosts, Franklin Leonard, founder of The Blacklist.
1: And I'm Kate Hagan, director of community at The Blacklist.
0: We have a great episode today, especially if you are a fan of Insecure, but also if you're just a fan of talking to just... Jay Ellis is one of those rare people who's like smart and talented and annoyingly good looking and just delightful to be around. And so you'll have that experience getting to listen to this conversation between Kate and I.
1: It's a great conversation with Jay. He's going to tell you the craziest story about how he watched a movie in some of the strangest circumstances of all time.
0: Truly wild.
1: Truly wild. We're going to talk about the hotly anticipated Top Gun sequel in which Jay stars and comes out later this year. We're also going to talk a bit about how his perspective has changed as a new father. Congratulations, Jay. And what you have all been waiting for. We are going to talk a bit about Insecure, his role as Lawrence, and some pretty pretty bizarre encounters that Jay has had in the wild as Lawrence. He tells a great story about a fan that went a bit too far over the line. And most importantly, we're going to talk to Jay about his very first directed episode of Insecure, which is coming up on May 24th. It's a really
0: fascinating conversation about a director prepares for the first time. Yeah, enjoy. Kate and I with Jay Ellis.
2: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
3: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f-?
0: Yeah, we'll just jump in. We start these conversations the same way every week. And that is to ask people, what was the first movie you saw in a movie theater? Or alternately, what's the first movie you remember watching in a movie theater? And it's not just about the movie, like just set, set the scene for us.
4: The first movie I clearly remember is Jurassic Park. And I think it was the first time where exhibitors did like a Thursday midnight screening. Like it was like the, one of the first times they ever did that. And I have a cousin who's in his mid-20s now. He was a baby at the time. His mom wanted to go. We bring the baby to the theater. It's like 11.30. Me, my mom, my dad, my cousin, his mom, my aunt. And I remember he cried through the whole movie. Which, of course, you would, because it was so loud and the dinosaurs stumping around. But I just remember that being such an amazing experience. Yeah. How old were oh, you man. at this point?
0: Do you remember? Because I mean, I, it's funny, I that was a very like distinct memory for me, because I was just old enough that my mom felt comfortable leaving me alone with my friends at the movie theater, so I didn't have to go with a family member chaperoning me. And, and it was a seminal moment. Right, like, I think I saw it three times opening weekend. I'm just curious, like this midnight screening with the baby and the whole fam, like, like how old is young Jay at this point?
4: I mean, I got to be, this is probably fourth, fifth grade. So I'm somewhere between eight and 10, I guess. Does that sound right?
0: And you were at the midnight screening. And
4: I was at the midnight screening. Yeah. Tulsa, Oklahoma. So I must have been closer to nine. Nine or 10. Uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, that movie theater doesn't exist anymore. RIP. Yeah, man. (laughs) And
0: was that the movie that made you fall in love with movies too? Or was there like a later point where you were like, wait a minute, this is maybe what I need to be doing?
4: Wow. I think that was definitely a move where I completely suspended belief, right? Like I just dove into the world that dinosaurs could actually exist now and roam the world. I think the first time I fell in love with movies and was like, oh, this is what I need to be doing is when I saw (laughs) (laughs) Spaceballs.
0: Wait, Okay. hang on, hang on. Definitely not the answer I was expecting, and this requires an explanation. John Candy dressed up. Hang on. I I just want to understand. So you came out of Spaceballs being like, I got to be an actor. That's it. I I, got to figure it out. Mel Brooks. Walk us through that, please.
4: It was something about just the spin, the satire of Star Wars. I don't know what it was, but there was just something that made me think like, oh, you could tell a story like Star Wars and be in it and interested and love it. But then you could also just make a spoof of it and it could be just as entertaining. John Candy was a genius. Yeah. I don't know why that's the movie, to be honest with you. I mean, then there's like, you know, I remember the first time I watched, uh, uh, not loving basketball, but um, he got game. I thought, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and just stop.
0: Stop there. Spaceballs is the best answer we're ever going to hear on this podcast <laughs> as inspiration to be involved in uh, movies. So we're we're just we'll cut it there. I'm going to ask you about basketball movies later anyway. We can go back to he got game, but Spaceballs. It, I, good luck, anybody beating that answer to the what is the movie that made you fall in love oh, with movies man. question. So it's Friday yeah.
1: night. You're gearing up to watch a movie. What's your ideal movie watching setup? Uh, We can talk about in your home and in the movie theater, someplace we're all very much aiming to get back to very soon. What kind of snacks are you eating? Do you like going with friends or being by yourself? Do you ever double feature? What's the jam? I'll
4: go with a theater experience because that's still one of my favorite places to be on the planet. I like going alone. I like going with friends Uh, I like going to the middle of the day. I like going at night because you get a bigger crowd and you get to like watch it with them and hear everybody interact with what's happening, being engaged. Snacks. I'm old school. I like popcorn. I like Sour Patch Kids, Milk Duds. (laughs) Like, you know, the stuff that's not good for you. Yeah.
0: The standard.
4: At home, now that we live in this world, you know, I Uber Eats before I... (laughs) <laughs> Watch a movie. Or <laughs> well, Postmates. You know, I, uh, I think I had, last week I, I had a sushi. Um, what's the super popular su- uh, sushi chain? Sugarfish. 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 Yeah, last week I had Sugarfish uh, and watched Extraction. <laughs> Quite the experience. Quite the experience.
0: Basically, I had sushi and watched Chris Hemsworth beat people up in more and more yeah. creative ways of, across <laughs> two
4: hours. <laughs> You didn't even know it was possible to beat people up like that
0: <laughs> I, I, look, I will give them credit for innovation in fight sequence yeah. at a minimum yeah. there There is stuff in that movie that I have never seen before for sure,
1: yeah. So the sort of flip of the ideal movie-watching setup is, can you think of any strange circumstances under which you've seen a movie? Like on a tour bus, in a swimming pool, uh, Ed Helms had a really fun answer about seeing a 16 millimeter movie projected in a literal back alley in Thailand. Any kind of like unique movie-going experiences?
4: Two that popped in my mind. I grew up with this kid named Bo. Bo's dad owned Arby's and not a Arby's like
0: all Arby's Arby's
4: (laughs) he owned the parent company Arby's these people had a big screen TV under the water in their pool and had speakers (laughs) that were above so we would dive in Watch the screen for like 45 seconds, <laughs> hop back, <laughs> dive back again, get out the pool, eat some RB sandwiches, <coughs> get a roast beef <laughs> with cheddar, dive right back in. Oh man, it was a mess. <laughs> Wait, is this mess.
0: also in Tulsa or is because you moved around? This is a lot in Tulsa. This is in
4: Tulsa as well. This was in Tulsa, yeah. This is when I was in high school. This has yeah. to
1: be like Tulsa royalty at this point too. You're just um, big screen movies and Arby's till your heart's content. Yeah.
4: Still to this yeah, day. I was gonna say to this day. Who do you York. know that has a big screen <laughs> under the water? Why? <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, I'm perplexed
0: by that as like a mood, as a choice uh, as when you install a swimming pool. Um, yeah. On the other hand, I guess we need true dedicated cinephiles who want to watch who don't want to miss a moment.
4: Uh, moment, I, I, I don't know. There's also one of those pools like at a Marriott or something where you could swim outdoor and indoor. indoor. <laughs> it had one of those like doors underwater.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean. <laughs> That's an unusual way to watch a movie, uh, Underwater. You said there were two, though. What's the other one?
4: The second one is the first time I watched um, Finding Nemo, which I think I was in college at this point. My basketball coach had two kids, two little girls, and we went on a trip. That was like a three-hour, four-hour bus ride, and we had to watch finding Nemo on repeat the entire trip because the girls would go crazy if something else was on the TV so the minute it ended we would all complain and be like oh come on coach put put something else on and the girls would start going crazy and he would just put it back on and make us suffer through it which not suffer cuz it's a great movie but you know you don't want to make a bunch of 21 year old 20, 19-year-old kids watch Finding Nemo over and over and over again. Well, yeah. Have you,
0: wa- have you watched Finding Nemo since?
4: No.
2: <laughs>
4: you're like, I'm uh, good. Fair. I've got yeah, the script like, memorized. Yeah, exactly. I know yeah. it. Nemo got all my time. <laughs> I,
0: I mean, also, though, like, a shout-out to him as a parent. Just like, look, I got my team and I got my kids. One is obviously winning.
1: Um,
0: <laughs> yeah. And sorry, guys. Yeah. You guys have headphones and laptops. Have fun. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Here's a fun one. Uh, what is a movie you th- that you will defend forever that everybody else thinks is terrible? We're talking like low Rotten Tomato scores. If you brought it up at a dinner party, somebody would kind of groan at you.
0: Yeah, I stole this oh, question man. from Ava. Ava asked this question at a dinner at Sundance to have everybody introduce themselves. It was like, what's your guilty pleasure movie? I I don't believe in guilty pleasures because the pleasure justifies itself. But what's the movie that like you're not entirely comfortable admitting to people that you will that you will stand for?
4: I will say, dude, where's my car? It's a good one. Don't know why. Gets me every time. Uh, Luckily, it's not on that often anymore. Here's
0: a different uh, direction. What's the first time you remember watching a movie and saying like about a character? That's me on screen. Right. Like, it's been interesting. We we added this question sort of later in the podcast's advent, but I've been fascinated by the answers. Like, when were you watching a movie or even a TV show? And we're like, oh, that's that's me.
4: I don't know. I mean, you know, as controversial as the lead of the show may be. The Cosby's was always aspirational, right? But I don't know that I identified with Theo other than the fact that we were both black men right. or boys, which obviously is a big thing to connect on when you don't have a lot of yeah. uh, that on TV. Um,
0: no, that actually feels right to me. Like for me, the other references I have, by the way, it's, it's, it's the kids from the Cosby show, Urkel because I was a nerd in high school, and then Dwayne Wayne from Different Worlds. Yes, world. Dwayne. Because I, yeah. like I was like I was like going to be I was like a math kid, and I was like, oh, black math major. Boom, done. <laughs> and, and I will feel a bomb with Kadeem Hardison for literally the rest of my life because of that.
4: When did When did a Different World start? It's, it's got to be. be... Late 80s, probably that
0: sounds right. Uh, yeah, premiered on September 24th, 1987, ran to July 9th, 1993. So, yeah, I was like yeah. nine when it premiered.
4: My imaginary friend looked like Dwayne Wayne, like he had the glasses. The glasses.
0: I got Always the glasses, in
4: like some co- co- uh, techno color. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. All right, so we're gonna jump into film. Intercu- oh, yeah, film, film just what real quick. Yeah, I, I don't even.
0: Well, what's interesting is, is that that's a very common response from the people of color and a lot of the women that we've interviewed. Is they're like, I can't really think of one. I don't know that I've seen myself on screen before. Um, And I think it's really interesting. Also, you as an actor and now a director, like you are now on screen yourself. uh, And I'm curious what that experience is like. Uh, especially given the sort of nonstop social conversation around Insecure, that you are somebody's first time they're seeing themselves.
4: It's a crazy thought. I never thought about that. You know, I'll say some of the first things that popped in my mind are like Boys in the Hood, obviously a lot of Spikes movies, but I I wasn't an LA dude. I wasn't a New York dude. Like there were connection points, but at the same time, we lived in different worlds. And now fast forward, here we are. And to think that Lawrence could be the first time that someone who looks like me feels like they're seeing themselves portrayed on screen is actually kind of crazy. I never really thought about that. It's wild. I am grateful and humble and proud to do it. But at the same time, I'm sad it took so long to see that. Because it's crazy that we can't just watch a vulnerable Black dude stumbling through life, trying to figure it out. What we've been in probably 30 years of this like broadcast cable TV world that we're in. And that's kind of crazy.
1: Let's talk a little bit more about insecure getting away from the world of uh, broadcast and on HBO. You got to give
0: the stands what they want we got to give the people what they
1: want. Insecure, which is now in its fourth season on HBO, it's really established itself not only as sort of an essential romantic comedy, but I think it's sort of become the hangout comedy in the way that living single or friends would have been 20 years ago. What's it been like spending five years with Lawrence and sort of digging into the nuances of not only his character, but now sort of everybody else in the ensemble, since you've gotten to spend so much time with them as well?
4: In some ways, it's been therapeutic, cathartic. Because <laughs> uh, I feel like we get, I get to work out so much of the stuff that was happening in my life at a different part of my life through Lawrence's journey. And even some of the relationships that I have been in, like watching Isa, watching Molly go through their journey. Like, I'm like, oh, I understand so much better now where this person was coming from in my life. And, and that's been really cool and really interesting to watch.
1: Have you been surprised by the ongoing, like Franklin was just saying, the social conversation around Insecure is so, I mean, there's so much conversation about every single episode. Do you ever read any of that? Are you aware of what sort of the the Twitter bubble is saying in a given week about an episode of Insecure?
4: No, so I live tweet, and then after that, I don't open my Twitter until the next Sunday. And I, then I go, <laughs> I go on Twitter after we finale... <laughs> Weeks after the show is over, because I just can't. I think I get too emotionally invested, and I take it personal when people take shots at Lawrence. Because again, I've been a Lawrence, um, and so many of my friends have been Lawrence, so I take it too personal. And yeah,
0: I was actually going to ask yeah. about like because people feel. Let's, let's let's say it gently. People feel very strongly about <laughs> yeah. not only the show but all of the characters but especially lawrence and, and you've been catching hell on so, on social since season one episode one yeah you clearly have put some uh some processes in place uh as <laughs> self-protection but i'm curious like how has the experience been of interacting with fans so that like what what is that like it's one thing to sort of okay i can just not look at twitter but i suspect that in, in person, you have people who don't like you that has nothing to do with you, Jay Ellis, and everything to do with oh. your character. And like, how does one handle that?
4: I, I, I didn't realize, you know, when I think about the 100-year history of, of Hollywood, I can understand how 40 years ago, 70 years ago, 80 years ago, people were caught up in these characters and fully thought they were real people and kind of lost the fact that they were just only existed in the screen. Right. It is wild to me that people still feel that <laughs> way. <laughs> what has been in your weirdest What has been
0: your weirdest like like fan interact or anti-fan like non-fan interaction? Cuz I feel like I mean, you I must these, have stories.
4: I tell these two because they're the craziest thing to me. I was going to Europe. I had stopped in New York. So I was at JFK and was buying some drama meme. I walk up to the little turnstile to get my Dramamine. And there's a woman who's standing right on the other side of it. And she is kind of in a position where if I turn it, some of the things on the turnstile are going to hit her. So I say, excuse me, miss. Do you mind? I'm going to turn (laughs) the turnstile. She turns around, eyes wide, (laughs) and literally just slaps the shit out of me. Wait, what? And I legitimately put hands on me. Slapped the shit out of me. And this is a 24, 25-year-old woman. So, like, it's not like she grew up, again, 70 years ago, right. Right, <laughs> thinking these people were yeah, real on she TV. She was mad at Lawrence. <laughs> she, she, she immediately recoiled, and she said she was so pissed off because Lawrence was her ex. Mm. And so seeing me in that moment <laughs> triggered... <laughs> her feelings about her ex. What was even more crazy is that the woman was a writer and she wrote for, I'm not going to say, it's not bustle, but it's like a bustle. Okay, It's like a some blog website type thing. And she said that she had a hard time separating herself from what Issa and Lawrence were going through because it was so similar to a relationship that she had. And to me, that was the wildest thing that I could even... <laughs> Do you know how many times how many actors I will haul off and knock the shit out of if I believed that they were that person? It's true. Have y'all watched Ozark this season? <laughs> <laughs> Laura Lenny's brother yeah. would get the business. Uh, Top Helfre will be in these
0: streets getting beat up every day. It's true. I mean, did she apologize afterwards? Like did she realize she what did she did? She was like, "Oh my god." Like Yeah. Yeah.
4: I mean, that she is- did apologize. She did apologize. The other time is when we premiered season 2. We did a block party down in Inglewood at a theater. We took over a whole street, but we screened in a theater. And as we were walking into the theater, this woman was like, "Fuck you, Lord. Fuck you." <laughs> You ain't shit. You ain't gonna be shit. She deserves better than your punk ass. And she's screaming so loud. It had to be three, 400 people there. Everybody stops and turns and looks at this woman. And she's across the street, but she's storming towards me, just like flying. I just remember the security guard that was with me was like, do you need me to handle this? And I was like, no, bro, it's good. I'm sure she's gonna come over here and like, the situation's gonna de escalate. And it did. She, uh, she came over and she was laughing, but she was, again, pissed and triggered uh, that she had a Lawrence in her life.
3: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
2: I want to talk a bit about
1: Jay Ellis, the director. Uh, In addition to starring in Insecure, you're stepping behind the camera for the first time this season with episode seven, which is called Low-Key Trippin', and it's going to be on May 24th. What kind of motivated that decision to start directing, and what was the most surprising thing about yourself as a director?
4: As I've been on this journey as an actor, I find myself always just wanting to learn more and wanting to dive into the writer's process and the director's process and the DP's process and sound. And and when I was on the game, I was fortunate enough, we were in our last season and our showrunner, Kenny Smith, actually let me bounce around to each department during that season. And so I got to like camera operate. I got to boom a couple scenes. Uh, I got to like sit there and listen to him And another one of our EPs pitched jokes back and forth. And I realized that the thing that I gravitated towards was the directing piece. So fast forward, we're now doing Insecure at that same block party, same movie theater. Issa pulls me aside and she goes, you should direct the episode next season. And I was like, I looked over my shoulder like, (laughs) who is she talking to? (laughs) And... um, Melina was there. I mean, it was like, he ain't ready. He, re- he ain't ready. <laughs> he just want to be in front of the camera. He an actor. And I was like, nah, I want to do it. I would do it. So Issa, true to her word, as loyal as she is and as much as she supports everybody yeah. in her life, she called me and she said, listen, we want to give you an episode this season. Do you want to do it? And I said, hell yeah. And at the time, I was still filming Top Gun, we didn't know fully what the episodes was going to be, but we knew that it was a trip. We knew that like, we were going to be away from LA in the episode. And then we get into production and I'm acting and directing. In the last week of production, we actually went out of the country and we just shot that episode. So I was just directing at that point. And I think the one thing that I take away from it, that I learned about myself, although it is not easy, and I'm sure something suffered along the way, I found myself very comfortable. And not that I felt like I knew everything or had an amazing handle on it, but I was very comfortable in the fact that if I didn't know something, I could turn to someone and ask them, what do you think? Or what would you do in this situation? Or what have we done in the past? And I think to have that freedom, which is something that I normally don't do, uh, I think that was something I learned about myself. It and was, it was, I think there was a moment of growth for me to just realize it's okay to say, I don't know.
0: Did you, in your first time in the director's chair, like, did you feel a great deal of pressure? Were you like going back and watching old movies and old shows to like like pick up tips? Like, how did you approach the preparation process?
4: Yeah, so... I felt a lot of pressure and not from Issa or Prentice or HBO or Melina. I just didn't want to disappoint anybody. And so, you know, I started shadowing for the finale of season two. I shadowed Melina. The next year I shadowed Alec Berg and Mike Judge on the finale of Silicon Valley, that season's finale. Then while I was shooting Top Gun, I got to sit with Christopher McQuarrie and just bounce stuff off of him all day long. And so by the time I got to this season, I felt like I had had people that I could reach out and call. And w- I was at dinner with Tommy Harper. Not Tommy Harper, sorry, Tommy Alter. And He shows up in so man, many
0: stories in this town.
4: Everywhere. Everywhere. We go to this dinner and Jordan Peele is sitting next to us. And I'm like, Jordan, yo, uh, I would love to sit down and talk to you, man. Uh, I just got some things coming up. And so I would just, you know, if you don't mind, like we could trade information. And Jordan gave me his email. And I'm sure he was like, here go another actor trying to pitch me for <laughs> to be in a movie or to write a movie. I
0: mean, he can't be mad at that. He is an actor who became a director. Yeah, like like that would be like mad hypocritical <laughs> if he was like, oh, these actors.
4: <laughs> that's true. But the man was just trying to enjoy dinner with his wife. You know what I mean? Fair enough. And so I email him. He immediately hits me back. And I go and I sit with Jordan for like two and a half, three hours. And just talked about his career, what made him transition into directing, and what his experience has been. And it was super inspirational. And I felt like he gave me great tips for preparation and told me all these stories of being on both sides of the camera. And then right at the end, he goes, but you know, none of that really means shit because I've never directed my co-stars before. And I was like, wait, bro, what? Why Why would you do that? No, come on, Jordan. Like you just uplifted me. You were the wind beneath my wings. (laughs) I mean, you know, you've seen
0: his movies. There's always a twist at the end. He's always kind of just like, oh, here's a dagger. Now go back out in the world and figure that shit out. Yeah. Um, But it was
4: great, man. And then after that, I went into a shadowed uh, on Black Monday and on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So by the time I got to my episode... I felt I had so much prep. I watched so many. I don't want to give away all the movies I watched, but I watched movies where I felt like the character, the a story in my in my episode. I felt like I had seen pieces of her journey in other things, in other places, and so there were things that I went and watched for performance. There were things that I went and watched purely stylistically and aesthetically, and that was. I stole shots from and Ara- Lawrence of Ara- Lawrence of Arabia. All right. I stole shots from uh, Ang Lee. you are you are right, you're
0: you're right. Yeah. You're right in our zone here. And since you're a director now, we're gonna we're gonna do a little speed round about the cinematic canon. This is not like yeah. Jeopardy. It's more about just like what you love. So, first question: Are there any films in the canon that, like you know, are great films by reputation that you just refuse to watch? Like, nope, not doing it. Can't do it. Nope, I can't do that. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so, so they exist. You just ain't saying. All right, fair yes, enough. Yes, they exist. Fair, fair enough. All right, Kate, you can ask the next one.
1: Uh, flip of that question is, what's a movie you put off watching for a really long time, and then when you finally saw it, you're like, holy shit, this is the business?
4: Yeah. Joker.
0: Yeah. That's a that's a good, that's a legitimate answer. So you held it off like- It a you, minute to watch it. You held off for a bit yeah. and then we're into it. Yeah. Yeah, fair yeah. enough.
1: Movies like that, I feel like getting out of the zeitgeist is actually the best sort of context in which to see them. There's too much noise sometimes when stuff like that comes out. Yeah.
0: Th- that one definitely felt like the conversation around it made it really difficult to watch it on its own terms. Uh, yeah. And I'll be actually really interested to watch it like 10 years from now and Ten see years, how I feel yeah. about it. Um and sort of think about it then. All right, uh, next one. So this actually is, we call this the Sidney Pollock question because he said that mm-hmm. he was only interested in making movies about two subjects because they're the only two things that we are no closer to understanding in 3,000 years of human history. Uh, favorite movie about love and favorite movie about war?
4: Mm. War is super easy for me, and that's going to be Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. Um, this is my rifle. This is my gun. Um, love, mm. I don't know. I'm going to think on that
0: one. All right. I'm going to come back to it. I'm going to ask you another question yeah. in the meantime, which is not yeah. part of our standard yeah. questionnaire. But you are a basketball player of some repute, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. You, were co- you were a college mm-hmm. basketball player. Favorite movie about basketball?
4: White Man Can't Jump. Oh, that's a good answer. He got, games. He got game is probably number two. There are,
0: there are a lot of very good movies about basketball, is, is sort of what Damn, I'm getting yeah. at here. But those are definitely two of the finest, no question. Um, yeah. But even like going back to like Blue Chips. Remember Blue Chips?
4: Oh, my God. Blue Chips. <laughs>
0: Shit. I just remember the trailer with Shaq and Is that Duncan Nick Nolte? Yeah. It was Nick Nolte and Shaq. <laughs> I just remember the trailer had Shaq, like, breaking a backboard basically like in a small gym and people losing their <laughs> minds and being hyped for that movie. Yeah. Um, but there are a lot of really good basketball movies. Um, we got spoiled in the 90s. So many good we sports movies. really did movies. get spoiled in the 90s.
1: Not quite a sports movie, but sports adjacent, we'll say. You're jumping into the cockpit later this year with the long-awaited sequel to Top Gun, Top Gun Maverick. You get to work with Tom Cruise and on one of the most beloved action franchises of all time. I imagine it had to be a bit intimidating set stepping foot on that set for the first time so I'm curious what that experience was like and also because the fans want to know the workout plan
0: <laughs> yeah drop the workout plan drop the workout plan for sure
4: I'll say listen working with Tom was absolutely amazing every day you're inspired because you walk in and first of all he's the nicest dude on the planet he knows everybody's name Ask you about your day, your weekend. He remembers what you said you were going to do on the weekend. And then on Monday, he asks you about it. Um, He's just that dude. And then you start talking to him about films and the way he breaks down films. And the dude is a filmmaker. Like, you start to realize that his career isn't just picking the right projects or being in the right place at the right time. He's been the architect of his career because he likes to make movies a certain way and he studies everybody. So you find yourself like super inspired by that because he realizes that he has something to learn from a lot of movies that are still coming out every single day that you would think that Tom Cruise would never watch. And then you ask him about A Few Good Men or you ask him about Cocktail. And he tells you the story, how he booked it, what his first day on set was like, what his last day was like, thoughts he had along the way. It's just really cool to hear because I feel like, you know, I've been doing this for a while and not everyone is as giving of their time and will tell you some of the some of their pitfalls and and their successes and why they had them. And Tom is that guy. And that was really dope. And then you get into filming. And Tom did our entire flight training program. He created it. Most of us had a trainer and were working out in between flights while swimming in between flights. We had an Olympic swim coach at one point. It was it was intense. It, it was intense. And then your diet completely changes. All of a sudden, meals are showing up at your door. <laughs> it's It was crazy. <laughs> I'm like... Can we do this all the time?
0: (laughs) Well, so here's the question, though. Tom Tom is known for infecting his uh, fellow co-stars with the desire to learn how to fly planes, to become pilots themselves, which is something that, if I'm not mistaken, he actually got from Sidney Pollack. How many of your co-stars have taken up, uh, you know, being a pilot as their side hustle uh, in the the (laughs) months since the movie happened?
4: There's three of us. Uh, Glen Powell.: <laughs> <had a> <laughs> Yeah. My, Glenn Powell, myself and Monica Barbaro, uh, all three of us. Glenn finished his pilot lessons already. I was this close to finishing mine, and then uh, the world turned sideways. Right. Uh, and I think Monica's really close, too. That's, it's, it's amazing.
0: I, I actually feel like there's going to be like a, a sort of family tree eventually of like <laughs> Sydney to Tom to literally the rest of Hollywood. Everybody has a pilot's license, and that will be the reason why. Yeah.
1: In addition to Top Gun, you also have currently airing Mrs. America, which is on Hulu. You're playing Franklin Thomas on that show, and I'm curious if there was any kind of research process knowing you're going to be playing a real person and if that added at all to the sort of responsibility of playing that character, especially because Franklin Thomas is still alive and a legend,
0: yeah, by the way. And I mean, I'm not just saying that because his name is Franklin, obviously, but he was a. Ele- I mean, like he ran the Ford Foundation yeah. for like 17 years. He was the first yeah. black like basketball captain in the Ivy League, like a total legend of a human being.
4: Yeah, a man we don't know a lot about, but we should. Yep. I think at one point he was on the cover of Time magazine, and it said, "Why isn't this man the mayor of New York?" That is how. Influential and like how big his presence was and how well liked he was, there was a lot of research and it was hard to find stuff to be honest with you. You get some of the bigger headlines, the Ford Foundation being the first black captain of an Ivy League team. You get a lot of those, but to get into more of his personal life was a little bit harder to find. And so I found myself reading a lot of, about what people said about him, how Gloria spoke about him or how other articles spoke about him or how he was constantly referenced in things. And that's where I kind of started to put together who I thought this man was and his relationship with Gloria. You know, Gloria Steinem calls him the love of her life. And so then I started to think about Gloria Steinem is feminism. (laughs) I mean, so what does this, who is this man in order to make that woman fall in love with him? And I just thought that was such an interesting thing. And, you know, he's a brilliant dude and super smart and has done a lot of really good things out there. And so, uh, yeah, I got to do a ton of research.
1: Did you get to meet him at all during the process?
4: No, I didn't. I, tried, I reached out, but it didn't work out.
1: That's okay. Next time, we got to give some congratulations on the podcast to you, Jay, because you're a brand new father, which is very exciting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How has becoming a dad changed your outlook on how you watch movies and what movies are you excited to share with your daughter?
4: I don't know if it's changed my outlook on how I watch movies. But I do find myself thinking about all the animated things that I've pushed off as an adult. And I'm like, oh, now I get to watch this <laughs> with my daughter and I'm not gonna feel like I'm crazy. I'm a weirdo for watching a kid's movie. Uh, so I'm excited about that. I tried to get her to watch the first Trolls like two weeks ago. Too young, not interested. <laughs> <laughs> I watched the whole thing. Yeah, I, I was like, I was like, this
0: just sounds like an excuse to watch the Trolls movie.
4: <laughs> Super excited about that. Yeah, it's been amazing.
0: Do you do you think about like you know when you're when you're this old, I'm going to show you this. Like, I don't have kids yet, but like I, I sort of have in the back of my mind. I'm like, oh, I can't wait till they're old enough for me to share this with them. Not even about movies necessarily, but like, I have to imagine. I think anybody who cares about anything looks forward to sharing those things with their kids. And and when you work in movies and you love movies like we do, like there's got to be the like, ah, someday we're going to sit down and watch, you know, like for me, when and if I have a daughter, like I'm super psyched to watch Bendit like Beckham with her because I'm a soccer obsessive and like I just feel like that's going to be a fun moment. I just wonder if you, ha- if you have moments like that that you're already looking forward to.
4: It's funny, now that you say that, it would probably be a basketball movie for me because it's the two things I love coming together. So there's a world which is love and basketball. Yeah, I was going to say,
0: that's the obvious one, uh, yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would love... Then I start thinking about, like, do I want to watch He Got Game with my, my daughter? daughter. <laughs> you know, there's some things in there that I, you don't really.
0: I mean, well, you, like, you just wait till she's old enough, but 100% it's like, <laughs> yeah, you're like rewatching things and being like, wait, am I comfortable with, with my kids watching this at this age? Like, I've had this conversation with my brother. He's like, yeah, there are definitely things that I've had to rewatch before I let them watch it, which is, you know, good precaution.
1: All right, we're going to wrap up with two questionnaire questions. questions. She's got one, I got the other. The first of which is, we ask this question of every guest on the show. Is there a single image from movies that has stuck with you for your entire life? Kind of iconic images. It can be a scene, it can be a cut, but just those sort of things that have stuck in your craw all this time.
4: Ooh, Michael Corleone hugging his brother, hugging Fredo. Great answer. Will never leave my head. I think this is stuck in everyone's head because it's like the moment of the movie, but I can fly Jack, or I'm flying Jack, I'm flying Jack from Titanic. There's this moment in Malcolm X where Denzel is standing in front of a police station, I believe, and there's a group of Muslim men behind, and probably like 100, 200 men. He puts his fist up. The cops are standing in front of them, and it's, it's very tense, and it seems like it's about to be a bad situation. And... Denzel puts his fist up and all these men behind him take a step as if they're in the army. And he slowly turns his hand and points his finger to the right. And they all turn and march out. And that shot, Spike Lee, that's another one of those moments where I was like, oh, this is what I want to be doing with my life. It's Spaceballs and Malcolm X. (laughs)
0: You heard it here, folks. That's JLS Ellis right there. <laughs> the way Spaceballs the pendulum
1: swings. Yeah, got to get it all in there.
4: Yeah. It's, no, yeah.
0: That's a, that, that, that moment is a truly extraordinary, and it's like two cuts, basically, and it yeah. all works. It's beautiful. I'm not going to let you off the hook, though, because I'm coming back to the best movie about love question or favorite movie about love question. Have you recalled one? And if not, I'll move on to a final question, but I wanted to give you a chance to answer it, if only as fodder for the anti-Lawrence
4: I'll say this. I really like the photograph, Issa's movie. I thought that, Issa and Lakeith, I thought that was a great love story. The notebook, obviously, Love Actually. What's love got to, not what's love got to do it, excuse me.
0: <laughs> there we go. That's the, that's the social <laughs> fodder we're looking for.
4: <laughs> Wrong Angela in the of How Stella got her groove back.
0: There we go. There we go. Much better. Actually, that's, that's, that's an adequate grist for the mill as well. All right, final question. Uh, and this one feels, every, every week that goes by, it feels weirdly more relevant. If you could program a single live screening, right? The, like, everyone on earth is going to come out to watch a screening of one movie. What would that movie be? We'll ignore the issue with like time zones and shit, but like everyone's gonna watch one movie at once. What movie would
4: you program for all of humanity? I think it would be a more ooh, it's, it's a tough one. Great answer, but that is a great answer. The love in that film, that relationship, how he takes care of her. Yeah, I think the filmmaking <laughs> it won an Oscar for a reason. Um, I mean, yeah. yeah,
0: that's it. Perfect. Done. We're out. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for being here. Congrats on the episode. Uh, We'll all be watching. Thanks so much, Jay.
1: Thank you, guys. From Luminary, the Blacklist podcast is a production of The Blacklist and Ninth Planet Audio. Our executive producers are Franklin Leonard, Kate Hagen, Han Zani, and Jimmy Miller. Gabrielle Horton is our lead producer. Nicholas Pertel composed our theme music, and this episode was edited and mixed by Kevin Liu. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at that Hagen girl, T-H-A-T-H-A-G-E-N-G-R-R-L. You can find Franklin on Twitter at Franklin Leonard and on Instagram at Franklin J. Leonard. And you can find The Blacklist on both Twitter and Instagram at The Blacklist, T-H-E-B-L-C-K-L-S-T.
2: Selling a little? Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey folks, I'm Mark Maron from the WTF podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Kleenex
3: Ultrasoft Tissues